Support for this podcast comes from San Francisco International Airport. At SFO, you can discover award-winning flavors and unique shops all before takeoff. Learn more about what's at SFO at flysfo.com. Hey, it's Glenn Washington from Snap Judgment. And if you love what you're hearing, and I know you love what you're hearing, please consider becoming a KQED member special access to cool events, behind-the-scenes footage, and so much more. Plus, you'll sleep better at night knowing you did your part for the community you depend upon. It's in you. Please be in it. Visit donate.kqed.org slash podcasts to sign up now. That's podcast with an S. Thanks. From KQED. From KQED in San Francisco, I'm Nina Kim. Coming up on Forum, CNN Plus. Have you heard of it? If you haven't, don't worry. It's already come and gone as of today. It was supposed to be a new streaming service that never really got off the ground because its new owners weren't quite sure it was worth it. But before it was terminated, CNN Plus had hired Public Radio's Audie Cornish and Wither, they hoped, a significant audience of news junkies. So is CNN Plus a cautionary tale for journalism or streaming or both? Some consumers are signaling they're overwhelmed by all the different streaming options. We'll find out what two media experts think. Join us. This is Forum. I'm Mina Kim. When it comes to what to watch and when, streaming services like Netflix, Hulu, HBO Max, and others are giving viewers more choices than ever. But some consumers are feeling overwhelmed by the sheer number of monthly subscriptions they've accumulated or their cost. Netflix recently reported subscriber losses, and new streaming service CNN Plus was shut down abruptly. So is there a problem with the subscription streaming business model, or have we reached peak streaming? This hour, we consider the past, present, and future of streaming with two media experts. And as always, we want to hear from you. Do you stream? Do you find it convenient? Frustrating? What would you change about it? You can always tell us at 866-733-6786. Tell us on Twitter or Facebook or Instagram at KQED Forum or email us forum at kqed.org. So let me tell you who is joining us. Eric Deggins is NPR's first full-time TV critic. Listeners might know and recognize Eric from his name and voice on Fresh Air. He's also the author of Race Bader, How the Media Wields Dangerous Words to Divide a Nation. Welcome, Eric Deggins. Uh, thanks for having me, although I've never been on Fresh Air. I would love to be on Fresh oh, Air. Oh, <laughs> says Fresh I'm, Air right I'm here. On, on... I'm, on, I'm on just about every other NPR show. <laughs> You know, when I saw that in the title, I was like, wow, really? I have to catch it. Yeah, no, that's my that's my uh, good friend, David B. and Cooley. That's not (laughs) (laughs) Thanks for the correction. All right. And Peter Labuza is with us, a lecturer at San Jose State University in film and media studies. Hi, Peter. Glad to have you on, too. Hi, Mina. Thanks so much for having me. And is that the right title for you? Yes, I teach at (laughs) San Jose State and I, I write about film and television at a number of different outlets. Oh, cool. So just to start, I'm really curious. I want to ask this of both of you. How many streaming services 
do you use in order to get the content that you want to watch? Is that you laughing, Eric? <laughs> that is me laughing. I don't even think I could give you a number. Uh, every every major one, uh, because it's my job. So uh, at least 10 or 12. Wow. How about <laughs> yeah, you, so Peter? I'm actually the exact opposite. I go to the movie theater a lot still. I'll probably go about once a week. I subscribe to MLB TV for baseball and I share Netflix with my parents who refuse to cancel it, even though I barely watch it. You better be careful. They're going to crack down on that password sharing pretty soon. That is that is absolutely right. You may, if you want to keep that up, you may have to end up subscribing. Um all right. So then, Eric, when you think about how you are overwhelmed with like 10 or 12, like a few years ago, what was it for you? Because I just did an inventory for myself. Like, I think right now I'm probably at around five. But a few years ago, it was Netflix and maybe one other kind of like Peter. Right. Well, you know, um, there's there's what's in what's happened, of course, is that um, the industry reacted because Netflix looked at one point, like it might become the Google of television, that it uh, that uh, whenever people wanted to watch uh, reruns of a show, uh, uh, they would turn to Netflix instead of watching it uh, on linear television, and and so um, competing media companies like uh, Warner Media and Disney um, looked at this and they said, you know, why are we selling um, the reruns of our uh, treasured library to this company that is essentially going to take over the streaming space if we don't do something. So, um, you know, all of these companies um, put together ambitious projects to start their own streaming services, and then they pulled back their most popular shows from Netflix's library. So, um, you know, Paramount Plus has all of the Star Trek shows now. I think there's only one left on Netflix now. Um, the Office moved over to uh, Peacock. Friends moved over to um, uh, to HBO Max because that's a Warner Brothers show. Um, so, so all these different companies said we're not going to let Netflix own this space. We're going to create our own streaming services. We're going to take the reruns of our treasured shows and put them there, and then we're going to create um, original shows to get people to watch as well. And yeah. so now that has produced this explosion. Of, of content that makes it really hard to know when you hear about a great new show, like where it's airing and what you have to pay to see it and, and, and what app or streaming service you have to be a member of in order to access it. It's gotten quite confusion. confusing. Yeah, yeah, totally. Uh, so, so how did we get here? Like, I mean, Peter, I want to go way back to, to what streaming is and when it started, actually. Because I was kind of surprised to learn that it was related in a lot of accounts to the 2004 Super Bowl halftime show with Janet Jackson and Justin Timberlake. Right. Um, of course. So I think people remember that famous incident, the uh, quote unquote uh, nipple gate. Um, that was a big moment for YouTube, right? Which YouTube became this big phenomenon around 2004, 2005, where anyone could upload videos within certain limitations. And what really happened is YouTube started to grow um, throughout the mid 2000s, in particular around right, other types of viral media. And then I think the studios, right, the studios that produced film and television, like Netflix saw at 
it as a space to start licensing, particularly right films you could buy for $2.99, $3.99. And that is what really kind of helped transform what Netflix wanted to see itself in, in about 2012, 2013, where these things could kind of pick up steam and have viral word of mouth. So the first show that they produced was House of Cards, right? This was the David Fincher, Kevin Spacey show, mm -hmm. uh, this political thriller that was a remake of a BBC adaptation. And they saw in their data that this was a guaranteed hit that um, David Fincher had been shopping it to other studios and they didn't want to buy it, but Netflix saw the potential there. So they said, we should finance this ourselves. We should really be the ones who are in the production game as well. And then we'll own it exclusively. You won't be able to get it anywhere else. And this has really been key for Netflix. And I think what a lot of these other studios are now responding to is that a big show, a big popular hit can get people into the game. Um, you can get yeah. people to subscribe. And then these other shows, your office, your friends, your whatever, are the things that will keep people subscribed in the long term. So this is why, um, you know, when Disney Plus started, they started with a Star Wars show. A lot of people signed up for the Star Wars show. And then it just happens, well, their kids would never like them to ever unsubscribe. So that's kind of a basic history of what's really happened that as Netflix moved into production and really has grown exponentially beyond the amount that they really kind of should be producing. And now they're going to have to start pulling back because they think that we have to make enough content that something's going to hit and something's going to be sticky enough to get people to subscribe and then stay subscribed. Yeah, well, I definitely want to dig into that and sort of the adaptations they are looking into making as a result of some of the pressures that they're feeling. But I got to say that the show that got me into Netflix's original content was Orange is the New Black. I actually didn't mm -hmm. really get into House of Cards at all. Um, but, uh, but Eric, can you talk about that? Like first, if you think that those two shows, House of Cards, Orange is the New Black, really solidified Netflix's position as a leader in this space. And if there were other things that were going on, like what other consumer habits were really contributing to Netflix's dominance? Yeah. So that year, 2013, was really pivotal for the media industry because that was when uh, Netflix debuted both House of Cards and Orange is the New Black. And they set the tone for the streaming um, space in a lot of ways. First, they came up with this idea of debuting all the episodes of a season at once. Uh, they didn't parcel them out week right. to week. So um, so consumers could could uh, consume the series at their own pace. If they wanted to watch an episode a, a day or an episode a week, they could do that, or they could watch the whole thing in one sitting. Uh, that was really new. Uh, the other thing that they did, uh, which is more behind the scenes, is with uh, House of Cards in particular, they bought two seasons of the show up front for $100 million. Uh, so, so that set the precedent of streamers working really far in advance, spending lots of money to get big names and big concepts and, 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 uh, and planning out entire seasons in big chunks and in, in, in even, um, you know, longer than that in big chunks. So they work really far uh, ahead now. All of this is done to serve uh, an impulse that is increasing amongst the consumer where they want as much control over their media consumption experience as possible. Uh, people want to consume this product wherever 
uh, on their tablet, on their desktop, on their TV, on their phone. They want to uh, consume it, you know, wherever, wherever they are, and they want to consume it whenever they want to see it. Whenever they want to see House of Cards or Orange is the New Black, they want to be able to access those episodes and watch them at a time that's convenient to them, not a time that's uh, dictated by a network, a broadcast network, or a cable TV channel. So all of those kind of um, benchmarks, all of those uh, trends came together to uh, allow Net Netflix to, to disrupt the industry in the way that it did by introducing these two really compelling, you know, one show you might argue was a little more male-centered, The House of Cards, another one uh, very much female-centered, but both of them uh, you know, um, unusual kinds of storytelling, disruptive uh, distribution techniques, and 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 even uh, a new way of, uh, of buying, you know, this product and, and and producing this product. Yeah, and so Netflix really enters the mainstream as you you and Peter both. And and, and it was yeah. a playbook, and it was also a playbook that was kind of taken from HBO. That oh. that's the other thing that's important is that um, they were taking over, trying to take over the high quality prestige TV space that HBO had had previously almost had to itself, except for, uh, you know, Showtime as a, as a much, uh, you know, smaller rival. Um, and they were adopting HBO's playbook by bringing on these shows that were also like cultivating critics, cultivating press attention, cultivating awards, uh, trying to, to, to show that not only are these shows distinctive and unique, they're high quality and, and people who are connoisseurs of television, you know, want to watch them, uh, which is something that, that, that uh, HBO had kind of developed. We are talking about how streaming services have taken over our viewing lives. And we're going to talk about what issues they're facing today and what the future might look like for them and us. 866-733-6786 is the number to call if you want to share with us what streaming services you use and what you think of them. If you find them convenient or frustrating or if you want to change something about them, 866-733-6786 is the number. Email address forum at kqed.org. Post your thoughts on Twitter, Facebook, or Instagram. Stay with us. I'm Mina Kim. Second time around. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall -wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall -wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall -wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary.
Welcome back to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. We're talking about streaming services, and my guests are TV critic Eric Deggins and film and media scholar and writer Peter Labuza. And we'd like to hear from you, too. Do you stream? Is it convenient, frustrating? What would you change about it? How do you manage the cost or hassle, if you feel like there is one, of having multiple subscriptions? Email us, forum at kqed.org, or post thoughts online, Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, at KQED Forum. Call us 866-733-6786. Kate writes, I subscribe to all of the major streaming services plus cable TV. I really like streaming because I can cancel the service if there's nothing that I'm watching at the moment. But as soon as a new season of The Handmaid's Tale comes out, I can just reactivate my Hulu account. I think the cancellation of CNN Plus is pretty funny because it mimics a storyline on Apple TV's The Morning Show where everyone is leery of the new streaming service. By the way, Apple TV is my current favorite and with excellent programming like Severance. Wow, Kate, I feel like you have woven together so many of the different things that we're going to talk about on this show today. Thanks for that comment. Uh, But one of the things I wanted to ask you, Peter, was just can you talk about how cable fits into this rise of streaming right now? Absolutely. So I think one of the big things that all these streamers were betting maybe about four or five years ago when they were starting to try and mimic what Netflix was doing is they thought cable TV would die a much quicker death than it has, right? There's still about 80 million uh, cable subscribers in the United States. Just to put in comparison, there are only 70 million people about subscribed to Netflix and Netflix is the biggest, right? So there's actually more cable subscribers than there are for any of these streaming services. Now, obviously that number is going to slowly reduce over the next decade to two decade, uh, right? The average cable subscriber is someone who's a little older and usually uses it for live news and live sports. Um, Hmm. These are things that the streamers are trying to get into. Um, They've been trying, Apple TV is now doing Friday Night Baseball. Um, Some of the NFL games have been going to YouTube and other services. Um, So I think one of the big questions has been how does cable fit into this? And particularly the big question is the advertising market, right? The big, one of the things when um, Eric was talking about how um, all the convenience and on-demand element of Netflix that made it so exciting for consumers was also the ad-free environment. And now, right, I think there's been a way that a lot of the streamers, both Disney, Warner Media with HBO Max, and now Netflix are all saying that they're going to have some sort of an advertising model going forward with a lower cost and thus, you know, some sort of ads either between the shows, before the shows, after the shows. It's not clear exactly how that's going to work. It's still kind of being worked out in the future. Um, But I think there's a sense that... um, part of why this is going to happen slow and why there's sort of this concern that we've been producing too much content is everyone saw it as entirely as a growth market when it's going to be much slower because the thing that's really going to honestly get people finally moving over entirely is first once live sports and live news move over and with that the entire advertising market. Well, let me go to Ellen in Castro Valley. Hi, Ellen. Hi. Uh, the story is that either of your guests foresee uh, something that I had thought of uh, which would make sense uh, as I look yet again to... Um, hey, Ellen, I'm so sorry. Story. I think we're having real difficulty with your line. Can you try calling back? Um, 
And let me go next to Alex in San Francisco. Hi, Alex. Oh, hello. First time caller. Oh, well, thanks so much for calling. What's on your mind, Alex? <laughs> well, you know, uh, what I was thinking about, I was so excited when I had the opportunity to give up cable because we saved a lot of money by giving up pay cable. But now, after having to subscribe to all of these different uh, subscription-based uh, things to be able to watch all the different shows we want, we are about paying the same that we used to. But <laughs> we are still happy that we do not have to watch commercials. I am kind of glad for that. Ah, well, Alex, thanks. And actually, I'm wondering, Eric, Peter had mentioned that it looks like, say, Netflix and other streaming entities are looking at putting commercials on their services sure. or at least creating like certain levels of services that would have commercials. So like, sure. is Alex's situation going to continue where he's going to continue to at least pay the same as he would for a cable service without any ads? <laughs> uh, I don't know if he'll, he probably won't pay the same, but, but there will be um, increasingly, I mean, what, what's been interesting about what's happened to Netflix is that they've had these practices that some people in the industry have criticized and, and said could be improved. And they've consistently resisted that. And one of the things they've resisted is, is uh, ads on any of their programming. But um, you know what's increasingly obvious is that consumers are willing to sit through ads if if they get a lower subscription price out of it, uh, and and so we've seen this. You know, YouTube, as, as a matter of fact, kind of pioneered this in reverse. You, YouTube started with ads and then offered um, you know users the the ability to pay for a premium subscription that would get rid of the ads, and and so now um, you know newer streamers. Uh, many newer streamers are offering, um, you know, a service with ads and then a service with with without ads, and you pay a little bit more to not see commercials, which makes sense to me. I mean, again, it, it's about giving the consumer as much choice as possible. I think we've reached a point with people who are consuming media that they insist on as much control over their experience as they can have, and part of that is also control over the price. If I'm willing to sit through commercials. Uh, and, and pay a little bit less to bring my my bills down, uh, then I want the option to be able to do that too. But I guess basically, if you're not, do you think people will start to pay more for what they currently have if it's commercial free, especially? Well, they're going to pay more. That much is 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 obvious because part of what's happening too is that Wall Street had um, had begun to reward media companies for having strong streaming platforms because they were looking at the success of Netflix. And they were also looking at the idea that I think people still share in the industry that streaming is the future of media. But, um, but what we've also seen is that maybe these streaming services have been a little overvalued by Wall Street and they've maybe pumped a little bit too much money into them before they've really proven their economic viability. So now I think we're reaching a point where streaming services are being a little more judicious with the money they're spending and investors are being a little more judicious in the money that they're investing with them. And so it's created a situation where, hey, everybody's taking a pause. Let's let's see if we can find a way to, to um, improve the content, but also thin it down. And, and let's see if we can get a handle on how uh, impactful streaming really is. Um, does it, does it, will these streaming services actually make money? 
Uh, and if they don't, does it make sense to invest in them as heavily as Wall Street has done? These are all questions that are kind of in the air now, given what's happened uh, to Netflix. And I think ultimately the result is going to be a little less content and a little more options for consumers because uh, they're trying to hold on and keep these people from leaving the service. Mm -hmm. So they have to offer a cheaper version for people who are quitting because they don't want to pay as much. And they also have to figure out ways uh, to, to, to create Netflix, especially create that kind of landmark programming to replace the, all the important library shows that they lost. So, so now, you know, if I have to buy Paramount plus to watch Star Trek, you know, maybe that makes me a little less likely to want to hold on to Netflix. So they got to figure out a way to create a new uh, show that that holds the same appeal to me in my heart as a consumer as Star Trek did. And that's a tall order. And I think that's where Netflix has been falling short uh, recently, frankly. Well, just on the the money thing, Jesse writes, I stopped my subscription to a mainstream cable carrier and got a small local internet provider and Hulu Plus. It saved me $100, easily allowing me to get more cable stations that I love and made me feel less guilty in enjoying a Netflix, HBO, Apple Plus, and Disney Plus subscription along with my Prime Video. It's a great alternative. I'm helping my friends do the same and saving lots of money. I think Jesse is telling us how Jesse manages, you know, the cost of multiple subscriptions. And of course, that's one of the questions we're asking you, our listeners, to share or um, just how you are experiencing streaming services, what you think of them. And uh, if there's anything that you would like to see change about that experience, 866-733-6786, the number. Let me go to Ellen in Castro Valley. Hi, Ellen. Thanks for calling back. Hi. I hope you can hear me now. Much better, um, yeah. I was... Oh, good. Okay. I was interested to know if either of your guests think that um, something that I have thought of would make sense is, is in the future, possibly, which is some sort of meta service where they would get licensing deals with all these different studios and providers so that, you know, sort of cherry pick from the top um, all of these things. So you don't have to constantly be thinking, oh, is it on this service or that service? And you could have one subscription that allows you to, uh, you know, to access all these different libraries without picking one over the other. Well, let me start with Peter. What do you think, Peter? Uh, you're just describing cable TV, essentially, <laughs> um, which is the it's the big problem, right? Because I think what these studios have been doing in developing their own streaming services, right, is this thing of exclusivity. Eric talked about this. So right now you can actually watch Seinfeld on Netflix. That is a licensing deal that is going to expire at some moment. And the big problem is, right, when we, if we go back to the 90s, um, television was essentially run on this fact um, where you wanted to produce a show over about four or five seasons and get to 100 episodes and get to what we call syndication, right? And once you had syndication, you had 100 episodes, you could license it, say, to a cable channel or um, internationally. And this is how the studios made money. And the big problem with streaming is um, it's not profitable right now, right? Netflix only posted a profit at the end of 2020 when they had to essentially stop production. And all these services are pouring in this money in the hope that they can reach scale, right? So exclusivity. So you have to subscribe to that um, service. And instead, we're finding that there's not really the same profitability that can be made in, say, releasing a movie theatrically or re 
releasing it on television, uh, even a cable television channel. So the idea that we might have some future where you can subscribe to the super service that licenses everything um, is kind of like, it's both a dream, but it's also the thing that the studios themselves don't want to do. Um, that's the reason they got into the streaming wars per se, is because they don't believe that that is a model they might. Now, I think you'll still see some licensings changing here and there, um, but I think it's gonna be much more limited. This is why I think a lot of people use websites like Just Watch or Real Good, that's R-E-E-L good, um, because you, at least can go to the website and find out where are all the places that this um, film or television show might be on. Yeah, I was going to say that I think what's more likely is that you'll find a few different services that will help lead you to the content that you're interested in. And then you'll have to decide whether or not you want to buy that streaming service or buy that particular show. Um, I have uh, Apple TV, the streaming unit for example, uh, connected to my main TV. And I can use the remote to talk to Siri and, and say to Siri, hey, Siri, you know, find me, uh, find me Superman and Lois. And it'll, it'll present several different options for me watching Superman and Lois, the CW series, from uh, you know, buying an episode through iTunes to subscribing to the streaming service that would feature um, the show. And um, you know, Comcast is also also has a um, its Xfinity you know um, online streaming service uh, also offers that you can speak to your remote and it'll tell you where things are. And they're expanding that service by uh, cutting deals with other cable services. So um, I think we will see some interfaces where you can ask uh, ask it, it to find shows that you're interested in. But um, you know it, it, uh, what Peter said is true. The main reason why we have so much choice now is that nobody wanted Netflix to be that service that, that had everything, and that and and they would have control over it, and they would make most of the money on it. Um, now everything is kind of fragmented, so you have a lot of choice, but it also means you have to do a little bit of work as a consumer to figure out where the shows are that you might want to um, you might want to view. But what I also felt like Peter was starting to touch on was just this question of the type of content too, Eric. Like, so you were saying earlier that, you know, we'll probably end up with um, less content, but more options for how to watch it. I I'm wondering what changes you think will happen, you know, as we're starting to see these, these concerns in the streaming market to the quality of the content that we do get. Well, we're, we're seeing some reporting that um, perhaps Netflix and other streamers are trying, are, are, are dumbing down their content a little bit because they're concerned that shows have become so niche oriented that it's harder for them to get big followings. But I think ultimately, um, I, don't, I, don't, I don't see that happening as much. I, I think what we'll have to see is uh, smarter bets made on a smaller number of shows. Because right now, there's just so much material. I mean, if you were to look at the last week or so of big TV releases, I mean, we've had everything from the First Lady on Showtime, uh, you know, three incredible actors playing three different First Ladies throughout history, Gaslit, Julia Roberts, and Sean Penn returning to series television to tell a story about Watergate. 
um, Barry, you know, Bill Hader's show on HBO coming back. Uh, we own this city, the creators of the of the wire telling a new story about Baltimore cops and crime. I, I mean, there have been at least a dozen major shows that have debuted that all deserve a lot of attention and all are pretty high quality, but there's just not enough bandwidth for people to pay attention to all this stuff. And I think every streaming service and, and program provider realizes the competition, they're cutting each other down in ways that maybe they could they could manage if there was less material out there and they weren't spending quite as much to try and have blockbuster after blockbuster show uh, on their streaming service day after day after day uh, to, to limit churn. So we'll see. Um, I, I think the economics of the situation are going to force them to do less shows and be smarter about the shows that they pick uh, so that they have a, a broader appeal and um, and and and, uh, and and so we'll get less content, but I don't think the quality will dip um, uh, very much. If, well, if I can just- Yeah, go ahead, here. Peter. Um, I think one of the most important things that we haven't really discussed is how labor is really uh, kind of changing and reacting to some of these issues in the industry. Um, so right, Netflix, when it debuted, it was able, as Eric said, to throw a lot of money at creators in this upfront way. Usually most um, top producers, actors, writers, directors get paid on what we call the back end, given like uh, a certain gross of the profits. Netflix, because it's a subscription model, doesn't really allow for that. Now, Netflix really was able to establish itself in the industry by A, offering these really, really high profile deals to people, but B, also um, kind of um, getting them to agree to have, they had this creativity in the industry of what they could do. And now the big question for a lot of these streamers is, do we need to start pulling back in what we're not just offering and sort of putting more guardrails on? But I think for a lot of creators right now, you see this worry in particularly the talent agencies is, um, is there a different model of payment going forward, right? Um, because yes. if studios are going to have to start, you know, reducing costs, those are going to hit labor first. And we saw this almost with the large labor strike with um, IATSE. This is a big um, uh, working class uh, group of, um, you know, people on sets that almost had a strike last year. And I think this is going to be the big question going forward is how does labor react to these changes that are coming in streaming as we get to something smaller? Wow, what ripple effects you are highlighting for us, Peter, which is probably why we're doing this show. I don't know that people realize how much streaming has taken over and changed things for us. We'll, we'll keep talking about it after the break. Stay with us. This is Forum. I'm Mina Kim. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. 
Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. Welcome back to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. We're talking about streaming, its impact, and its future with Eric Deggins, a TV critic for National Public Radio, and Peter Labuza, a lecturer in film and media studies at San Jose State University. And you, our listeners, are joining the conversation with your experiences of streaming, your thoughts, your questions. The listener writes, one issue I dislike is when Netflix has a new show that only make it they only make it for one or two seasons and then no more, usually leaving the viewer with some cliffhanger last episode. Another listener writes, I'd like to hear from the guests about how dropping a show all at once worked against building audience hype and ultimately show success for the shows I like. Apple's foundation and Netflix's Stranger Things, it seemed to prevent the kind of office cooler kibitzing that <laughs> built HBO's monster hit Game of Thrones. Jonelle writes, Great show so far. I'm subscribed to so many. I'm a sucker for all things British, BBC, BritBox, Avon. I love it all. Give me British cops anytime, but also Bridgerton, Shonda, love. TV rocks these days. So many different types of reactions that we're getting. I don't know if anybody, Eric, do you want to weigh in on, on the binge watching that we were able to do when Netflix dropped everything all at once? Because I really do think that's going to change, right, to keep people on for longer and longer to watch a show they love. Well, I think what um, we uh, have discovered, and particularly, I think, uh, Disney Plus and the way that it handled its Marvel uh, series um, demonstrated this um, really effectively, that when you drop all the episodes of a, of a season at once, it limits the impact that the, that the show can have on the pop culture conversation, because fans generally, um, you know, watch those episodes pretty quickly and all the press attention sort of comes in one big rush in over a week or two, and then people have moved on. Um, what what, uh, what uh, Marvel was able to do and Disney Plus was able to do is they would put out, uh, I think WandaVision put out the first two episodes, I think when they first debuted, and, and Hulu has done stuff like this too. They'll put out the first two or three episodes of something so that um, it can make a bit of a splash and fans can get a good, um, a solid experience of a couple of a couple or three episodes that they can uh, watch at once. And then they watch, then they drop the episodes week to week. So an episode drops of WandaVision, for example, something significant happens during that show. And then the fans spend a week talking about it on social media. And there's, there's uh, press, there's critics like me who write stories. And then that fuels interest in the show, uh, in the show's next episode. And then, and then that, that plot line advances and then people talk about it more. And it, and it helps the show in terms of keeping it in front of people's consciousnesses for a longer period of time. And uh, I think it also helps people kind of process the show. They get, a, they get a chance to digest these episodes and don't feel like they have to rush through them so quickly. And so, you know, Netflix has experimented with splitting seasons in half. The last season of Ozark was split in half and half of it was released um, earlier this year and half of it is going to, the final half of it is going to reach the public on Friday. Um, um, they also have done that with Stranger Things. So, so even Netflix is trying to experiment with, can we release batches of episodes at least so that the show kind of stays in people's consciousness uh, for longer. And, and I think this is another one of these things, along with an ad-supported tier, that Netflix is going to have to improve. Um, the binge-watching model 
has 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 limited the effectiveness of a lot of great dramas on Netflix. And I think they really should consider adopting the model that Hulu and Disney Plus um, offers. Hmm. So, Peter, we're talking about how streaming content might change how it's distributed, could change how prices will change. I'm just curious if there are audiences that you think will be underserved by some of the changes that we're likely to see and are already seeing. Well, the big issue that I think that's been coming up, right, is that Netflix really push toward a niche market, right? That they wanted to sort of find every niche, whether you're an anime fan, whether you're a stand-up comedian fan, whether you liked programming that was particularly for African-Americans or Latinx or Asian-Americans, as well as, right, and one of the biggest pushes has been Netflix pushing globally. And I think this came out with, I uh, forget the creator of one of the shows, um, but it was a particularly, I was the Babysitter's Club. Uh, this was a Netflix show that was doing pretty well and she she believes the reason that it was canceled is because it wasn't a global hit. Um, and we've seen the way that Netflix is really kind of trying to find these global hits, whether we're talking about Squid Game, whether we're talking about Money Hits, whether we're talking about Lupin. And it doesn't, it, those can be successful for Netflix, but I think there's going to be this way because Netflix serves this one-all user interface, right? Think about cable channels as we might be annoyed that there's 500 ch cable channels, but everyone has their three or four that they absolutely love. And Netflix's user interface is just one spot. And I think this changes the way that we watch and think about film and television. And so I think one of the biggest challenges is Netflix is thinking about engagement as opposed to views, right? So like last year, they released this $200 million film, Red Notice, with Ryan Reynolds and Dwayne The Rock Johnson and Gal Gadot. And it supposedly had like way more views than anything in the history of Netflix films. And yet nobody I know watched it, talked about it. And so when Eric's talking about, right, moving actually back to this other type of engagement mode where you kind of release things slowly, I think one of the biggest challenges that Netflix has going forward is thinking about what engagement means as opposed to sort of a passive view. And I think how to really talk to not just the creators they're working with, but the uh, the consumers they're working with and getting more than just, you know, playing data, but really getting a sense of how people actually watch things. I, I would, I yeah, would, go I ahead, would, Eric. I would, I would point out that Netflix has an algorithm that affects what comes up on the screen when every user interfaces with the, the platform. So, so that one screen is different. Uh, for for a great many different um, you know users depending on where they live, uh, what country they live in, and what what programs they have access to, and their viewing history. So it's a little different than a cable channel because that mix of programs is different for for everyone. Well, doesn't um, Peter use his parents? <laughs> Maybe he's not getting. What well, he... I'm assuming Peter has his own profile. <laughs> yeah, which would I do. Be that's true. That's true. That's his, true. And his parents. But but we all so know you do people, know this, Peter. <laughs> you, but we all know, right? You turn on a streaming service and you spend how long trying to find something. It still feels like because of 
how much content is on there. You can't even find the thing that you want to watch. Maybe you sometimes have to search um, for it. I noticed this when I had Amazon Prime recently to watch um, the Barry Jenkins show, The Underground Railroad. And like I had to specifically search for it. It was premiering only a week after it had premiered and it was gone from the Amazon user yeah. interface. And yeah. like I think yeah. that's a huge problem is that these yeah. companies have spent a lot on content and they haven't spent a lot on um, technology of like what that experience of logging into a streaming service is actually like. It's very yes. frustrating for a lot of people. It, that's true. And, and I, I also wanted to point out um, that one reason why Netflix is focused on global content is because that's where its subscriber base can grow. Um, I think there's a sense that, that Netflix has kind of topped out uh, on the, the subscriber growth that it can get in America. And, uh, but, but Netflix still maintains that there are a billion households across the world that can access its streaming service. So with you know, something like 220 million subscribers, they feel like they still have headroom, a lot of headroom to expand. We'll see if that's true because uh, so many of those households are outside of the US and they have to develop very different kind of programming to reach them. Yeah, it'll be really interesting to see. Well, John in Mountain View, join us. Thanks for waiting, John. Hi, yes, ma'am. Um, I just wanted to bring up to the guests, uh, with the proliferation of all these different streaming services, um, something that kind of stands out to me is trying to nickel and dime the customer. And with a lot of underserved communities, a lot of folks are turning to um, online piracy again, like it was the 2010s all over again. Um, and I'm, I, I wonder if they see, you know, having so many services driving that uh, back into wide adoption. Hmm. Uh, I, either of you want to take that? Peter, do you want to start? Sure. Yeah. Piracy has obviously been a concern for um, the entire film industry and television industry for obviously decades in a lot of ways. And I think, you know, it's complicated. And there was a recent report put out by, I believe it was the MPA, is that when these, um, these films that are playing theatrically first and then on streaming, it really kind of slows down the piracy curve because people show up to the movie theater. If that's the only place they see it, they don't want to watch say you know someone recording it on their iphone they want to see it in the highest quality and obviously i think there's a lot of work being done to um you know create new ways of watermarking things and i think the question is just i think people turn to piracy when access isn't convenient this is the reason that people do it for all sorts of reasons it's the reason that you know uh china has been the leader in piracy consumption for years is because the content is just just not accessible in easy fashion. And so I think when we think about um, the fact that there's quote unquote too many streaming services, right? I think people get to this point where you log on, you find out where the thing is. You're like, I have to sign up for another one. And then you might know that there's this piracy uh, thing that you can do. And that's why you turn to it. So I think it's something when the studios are figuring out how they wanna manage their relationships with each other, um, I think that's going to be the thing that if they figure out a way to make this more convenient for the consumer, rather than like, as Eric said, having to do hours of research to figure out where something is, that's going to be the thing that will drive piracy down. Streaming is convenient in a way where you don't have to pirate. Um, but if you don't make it convenient to the consumer, that's what drives people to do it. 
And and it's also price, you know, mm -hmm. um, movies to, to have a movie in your home, uh, you know, you'd have to spend, you know, at least uh, 20 bucks for, you know, buying it on iTunes or something like that, um, you know, um, for a, an episode of a streaming show or even a season of a streaming show, um, you know, you'd spend less than that for a month's subscription to Netflix. So I, I don't I don't know that there's much of a price incentive to get too deep into pirating uh, streaming um, uh, um, service um, programs because you know um, I'm, uh, you know Disney Plus is what like eight bucks a month or something like that and 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 Apple TV Plus is is about uh, that or even cheaper you know most of these streaming services are relatively uh, cheap so how do you provide a pirated piece of content where the pirate makes money? Uh, but it's cheaper than paying seven bucks to access, you know, a streaming service for a month. Uh, you know, I, I think that's one of the biggest challenges, frankly. We're talking with Eric Deggins, TV critic for National Public Radio, and Peter Labuza at San Jose State University, lecturer in film and media studies. And you are listening to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. Let me just read a few more audience comments here. Steve tweets, I remember the days of having to buy an entire vinyl LP to get that one favorite song, but never liking it. Similar to having to sign up for a service to see that one special movie. Services should allow pick and choose rentals. Jennifer likes it. She says she's never going back to cable. Jennifer writes, we use Netflix since the DVDs, HBO Max, Disney Plus, Hulu Prime. Also Funimation, which is moving to Crunchyroll. Not sure if that's a good thing. We're never going back to cable but it makes watching live TV a conundrum. Thanks, Jennifer. Peter writes, I heard a story about sponsors pulling back from Fox News. Turns out those boycotts made little difference to Fox's bottom line because cable subscribers pay for Fox when you want to, whether you want to or not. Three months ago, we dropped cable, joined a few more streaming services, and pay a fraction of what we paid before. So a lot of reasons that people are using streaming or liking streaming or disliking streaming uh, I do want to go back to kind of where we started, though, with the few minutes that we have left on this show, and that was with the news that CNN Plus shut down. And I think today was actually the day that, like, their programming ends totally for the month that they were alive. It's uh, Saturday. Saturday. It's, yeah, I saw that it was Saturday, but then I saw that the date got potentially pushed up to today. So I don't know. We'll see. Anyway, either way, it's going away. And mm -hmm. I, I do think it raises this question, Eric, of, like, what... What is the role of news? Like, will it find a home on streaming the way that well, it wants to? Um, uh, well, I mean, it already is on streaming. Sure. In that, um, you know, CBS, ABC, NBC, they all have free uh, digital streaming versions of news channels. It's not, um, you know, it, uh, MSNBC and, and CNN are also available by streaming, uh, particularly if you have a cable subscription, you can... You can you can watch it on streaming. Uh, now a standalone service uh, that has different content than what's right. on the linear channel, like that's the main thing um, that that is at hand. Now Fox News has Fox Nation, uh, which offers that, um, but Fox News has a particularly loyal and specific audience, and and uh, and I'm not sure how much money that service is making, but it has been around for a while. Um, that's why I was, um, uh, you know, I, I didn't join in the skepticism that a lot of people had about CNN Plus 
uh, because I thought it might be possible if they were given time to sort of figure the space out that they might have have worked out how to make a standing uh, standalone streaming service work. But you know the reason that that got shut down had everything to do with the change in leadership um, of the parent company. Uh, and and not uh, so much to do with the success of the actual service because the, the service itself didn't have hardly any time to prove itself. So even with all the reports that you know there weren't a ton of people when it opened up after the market. Well, they they say that they had uh, between 100 and 150 thousand subscribers, which is what they expected. Um, so um, you know from from their standpoint, uh, they were on pace to reach their modest subscriber goals. Um, you know again. Uh, we just talked about all the material that is available to people on streaming. Yeah. So to expect a streaming service to, you know, have these robust numbers in a quarter where even Netflix reported losing subscribers, <laughs> to, to expect them to have blockbuster success right out of the gate just doesn't make any sense. What do you think, Peter? I think there's an issue with... Um... You know, as I think Eric hinted, right, the, the CNN Plus is a little bit of an insider baseball story about the switch when Warner Media was sold sure. from AT&T to Discovery and they're kind of combining. But it does broadly think about this um, kind of switch that's happening in the industry of conglomeration where mid-tier film and TV studios are now just looking to be acquired as opposed to compete in a landscape that's all about exclusivity. You know, um, I'm a historian by trade, and this goes back to back in the 20s and 30s and 40s. The movie studios owned some of the biggest movie theaters in the United States and then bullied a lot of the independent theaters, and the U.S. government did a lot of antitrust work um, in a famous decision called United States v. Paramount that broke that up, and it really kind of created way more competition in the industry through the 50s and 60s and 70s. And the same thing happened with television, where it was a very competitive market. And I think what we're seeing in the biggest issue that I'm concerned going forward is that as we're seeing conglomeration, first people being fired, not just at CNN Plus, but uh, TNT and TBS fired all their scripted um, uh, uh, workers as well. And I think we're seeing a place where this exclusivity is actually creating a much more constrained strained market that doesn't allow for other, um, you know, newer, exciting, more interesting, um, you know, competitors to enter the market. And I think if we're thinking about sort of the consolidation issues in big tech with Google or Amazon, this could be a similar issue. Well, Peter Labuza, really appreciate hearing your thoughts today. Thank you so much for having me. A lecturer on film and media studies and writer. He's at San Jose State University. Eric Deggins. TV critic for NPR, not on Fresh Air. <laughs> not on Fresh Air, but Thanks. on All Things Considered and Morning Edition uh, and, and Here and Now. <laughs> and thanks for being on with us today, Eric. Really appreciate it. Sure. I learned a lot from you both and also from our listeners and from Blanca Torres, who produced today's segment. You've been listening to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. Just march on. Funds for the production of Forum are provided by the members of KQED Public Radio, the Germanicos Foundation, the Generosity Foundation, and the Heising Simons Foundation. 
Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. All over the country, we need to improve reading in Wisconsin. Schools are changing the way they teach reading. I'm calling for a renewed focus on literacy. We have gotten this wrong in New York and all across the nation. And it's happening because of a podcast. I think your podcast has changed my life. And I'm going to share this podcast with everyone I meet. Sold a Story investigates how teaching kids to read went wrong. New episodes of Sold a Story are available now.